Chapter 14, Illegal Immigrant Problems. My light blue corduroy pants that I had proudly purchased with my 50% employee discount at Gap were ruined forever. Hot drips of my cafe mocha spilled on my thighs, but I was crying too hard to hold the cup still as my dad weaves through traffic on 280, right past the Winchester Mystery House, the only recognizable San Jose landmark, and the one that I never visited in the 15 years we lived in the city. Sarah Winchester was famously convinced that the spirits cursed her family, and that if she kept building staircases that led to nothing, the confused ghosts wouldn't kill her. Right about then, I was considered doing the same thing to our townhouse, so my parents wouldn't be able to hunt me down and end my short life. Where are you taking me? I asked, not recognizing the route we were on as the one we that normally got us home. Mabirimet grabistum, my mom responded dryly. This directly translates to, we're taking you to the cemetery. I didn't know it at the time, but this is an Iranian saying used when someone complains about having to go somewhere. I just thought it meant my parents were going to murder me. There were only two other things I was able to process during that tumultuous drive. My parents were in the throes of a nervous breakdown, and I had driven to them to the edge of insanity. If my dad slowed down the car to shove me out of it, the cops probably would have de- deemed it a fair punishment. The car ride that day in March is forever imprinted in my mind as the worst fight I've ever had with my parents. They'd taken me out of school for the first for the day to deal with my immigration paperwork, but as the end of my senior year was approaching, all I wanted to do was hang out with my friends, flirt with Slash, who was then on the precip- pres- precipice of becoming my boyfriend, and head over to Izzy's after school to gossip about our friends and potential love interests. Our favorite pastime was playing a game we'd invented called Random. We'd load her five-disc CD player with our favorite albums and treat it like an oracle. We'd ask questions about our future, this slash into me, then hit the random button on her Sarah system. Whatever song played would answer the question. But instead of learning what the future held, I'd been dragged down, dragged to downtown San Jose so my parents could fill out paperwork with our immigration lawyer. I didn't care if we were supposedly nearing the end of our legal legalization nightmare. We were always supposed, supposedly nearing the end of our legalization nightmare. I wanted to be a normal teenager. I was sick to death of visits to the INS that required standing in lines that made the DMV look like a spa day. Just renewing my employment authorization card required waiting outside at 6 a.m. for the doors to open three hours later. Most teenagers camped out for concert tickets, but I had to camp out so that we could, I could continue to legally work in the country. Stupidly, I always thought the agents would be nicer to me than other immigrants, because at least I spoke perfect English. But they treated me with the same disdain they did everyone else who passed through the metal detectors, all of us equally confused by the rules and their paperwork that always seemed to be missing one important, some important piece of the required file. There were no, there was no worse feeling of defeating of defeat than waiting at the INS for five plus hours, only to be turned away for not ha- presenting the proper paperwork that you could have sworn you'd never received in the mail. I had reached my boiling point. I officially had illegal immigrant fatigue, and it had caused the most dramatic family rift I had experienced. That particular day, I threw a fit when I took when it looked long, like our dealings at the lawyer's office would take longer than expected, and I wouldn't get to hang out at Izzy's. By then, I'd gotten used to being up under my breath when it came to our immigration issues, only to have my parents frantically apologize for the messy state of affairs. But this time, 
something snapped inside of them. All the uncomfortable and vicious fights I'd witnessed between my American friends and their parents suddenly seemed like child's play. I couldn't bite my tongue or stop myself from talking back. I was acting like every rude teenager I'd been secretly horrified by. Years of frustration and stress were spilling over on both sides. On my parents' end, they couldn't understand why I was making an already challenging situation worse. On my end, I realized something I'd never quite verbalized before. This had nothing to do with me. It was their fault. Why didn't they immediately apply for political asylum? Why didn't my mom bite the bullet and enter into a fake marriage to get us green cards faster? Why did they trust incompetent lawyers who steered us in the wrong direction just because those lawyers were Iranian? I should have been cursing the system, but my mom and dad were much more tangible scapegoats. But they no longer had it in them to quietly take the blame and apologize for inconveniencing my life. For once, they decided to fight back. The most disturbing part of our argument in the car that, that day was the moment my dad declared that he hated his life. Looking back, I know he didn't mean it at all. It was a comment he made out of sheer exhaustion and anger. This was still the man whose motto was, don't worry, be happy. Nothing seemed to get under his skin, but hearing him say that he hid his life brought on a sobering realization for me. My parents were human. They had their own disappointments and regrets. Over the years, I had considered their hap I'd never considered their happiness. It was just a given. Of course they were happy. They had three healthy children who adored them, most of the time. What more could they want in the world? The thought of them waking up feeling sad or miserable made me sick to my stomach. After years of paperwork, lawyers' fees, and an unwanted divorce, my parents were finally falling to pieces. If anyone out there thinks that, that undocumented immigrants are privately high-fiving each other and throwing backyard barbecues to celebrate their free-ride in America, let me assure you, that is not the case. What followed our blow-up were heartfelt apologies on my end and my parents' end, but we had no idea that our immigration status was just was about to get far more complicated and scary. The worst was yet to come. In June of that year, my sister was about to turn 21. This meant she could drink legally and go to bars. It also meant she could buy me alcohol upon request, and that we looked enough alike that I could use her ID to go to bars myself if I wanted. She was as excited as any warm-blooded, alcohol-loving American would be. And that's partially why my parents had decided not to tell her that turning 21 also meant she would no longer be allowed to get a green card through the application we'd filed with my uncle as our sponsor. This is what INS called aging out. It's a term used when a company child of an application turns 21 before the case has been approved. That means a child can no longer be granted permanent residency as part of their parents' application. We'd filed to get a green card through my uncle in 1985, and after a 13-year waiting period, my sister was about to get kicked off our application. While my mom and dad and I would be able, all be able to become permanent residents, my 21-year-old sister would have to start the process all over again. If that happened, her only hope would be temporarily marrying our cousin, who, unbeknownst to us at the time, happened to be gay and in a committed relationship. Anytime my sister called from college to catch up, I had to keep the terrible aging out secret from her. My parents insisted that we didn't mention to the Samira. Why worry her if we could manage to alleviate the issue? She was in the middle of finals, and there was no way she'd be able to concentrate if she knew about what we were dealing with back home. Nearly five years before, she had been the one to break the news to me that we were at the risk of being deported. 
but I couldn't bring myself to tell her that she might be the illegal immigrant black sheep of the family. In a nutshell, here's how the process worked and exactly what we were up against. We received a notice in the mail that an application for green cards through my uncle was being considered. It had been more than 15 years since we moved to the country, so we were besides ourselves that our Im illegal immigration problems were finally coming to a close. But what followed was more waiting. After your application makes it to the top of the pile, you get another notice in the mail for an appointment to get your fingerprints taken, which are used for a background check. Once your background check gets approved, you receive your interview notice in the mail. The process after your background check is up to the snuff letter can still take years. But we didn't have the luxury of time on our side. My sister had to get her interview date on the books before her birthday or she was screwed. So our lawyer, also known as the white savior in this story, rushed my mom's and my sister's applications. This meant once their fingerprints were received, they'd immediately get assigned an interview date and my sister would avoid aging out. Within a few days to spare, my mom and sister got their fingerprints sent in, and it seemed like everything was falling into place. Until a storm on the East Coast threw a major wrench in the plan. Due to bad weather, it looked like the fingerprints would not arrive in D.C. in time. Samira was going to turn 21 on Monday, June 22, 1998. By Friday, June 19th, there was still no indication that the fingerprints had been received and that the interview date had come through. At this point, my parents were more desperate than they had ever been, so they decided to drive straight to the INS and beg. The offices were closed when they arrived, but they banged on the door and asked the janitor to let them in. This was pre-9-11. I had a feeling they'd be arrested for that now. When the janitor saw that they were both in tears, he took pity on them and ushered them inside. They must have looked pitiful enough because they managed to get FaceTime with the immigration officer on the case. The officer stared back at them blankly as they explained their predicament, and then he cut them off. I don't know why you're here, he said. The fingerprints we received for your, the fingerprints were received for your daughter. Everything is fine. She has an interview date. In an era without cell phones, our lawyer had been trying to reach my parents to let them know our, my sister application was in the clear, but they were already banging on the doors of the INS. Our lawyer even called my uncle to tell him, but no one was able to reach my parents. And that's why it was the immigration officer who broke, broke the good news. My dad was so overcome with joy and relief that he pulled the man into a bear hug. My sister was only filled in on the story after the fact, and by the summer of 1998, she and my mom finally got their green cards. To put things into perspective, it, took, it would take another two years for me and my dad to become permanent residents. If we hadn't been able to get a rush on my sister's application, she would probably be still waiting to become a legal immigrant. A legal immigrant. I remember my interview at the INS as well. By then, I was going into my junior year of college at UC Berkeley. After two years of debauchery at UC Santa Cruz, my immigration... My immigrant child guilt complex kicked in, and I decided I couldn't let my parents pay for a college education that included no grades, narrative evaluation, and a stump, of on, stump on campus that doubled as a bong. I needed something more academic, so I made the move to Cal and suffered through life as a junior transfer with no friends and no social life. My isolation was compounded by the fact that during a weekend home visiting my parents, I had the urge to cut my hair on a Saturday without an appointment. I slipped into a salon in the posh town of Los Gatos, and every ounce of my being told me to run the other way when I was greeted by a hairstylist who is definitely in the witness protection program and hiding out from the mob. 
I showed him a cute photo I had found of Kate Winslet with a layered bob. When I left the salon, I had an uneven, boy-short pixie cut. I went to a stylist in Berkeley to get the cut fixed, and she looked at me and said, This is the worst haircut I've ever seen in my life. In order to fix his screw-up, she had to trim my hair even shorter. So when I arrived in the INS with my parents for my interview, I was a spitting image of Justin Bieber. As previously mentioned, I still hadn't got over my sterling silver phase, silver, sterling silver ring phase, and my mom was utterly horrified. Despite my questionable physical appearance, I charmed the immigration officer, answered a bunch of benign questions, and walked out knowing that I'd finally be getting green card. The whole process took an hour, tops. Actually, the whole process took 18 years, but the end felt deceptively easy. The final, the financial benefits of becoming a permanent resident would ease, also finally ease the burden of college tuition on my parents. After three years of struggling to pay my tuition out of pocket, we were finally able to apply for financial aid for my senior year. The timing had worked out similarly for my sister when, two years prior, they were able to get a loan to pay for her last year of college. But getting a green card wouldn't be the end to our story. I still wanted to become an American citizen. For years, I'd claimed to friends, classmates, and coworkers that I held on to my Iranian citizenship because I wanted to travel back to Tehran at some point, and it would be much more difficult to difficult on a U.S. passport. This wasn't a lie exactly, but the real reason I wasn't a citizen was that you had to have a green card for five years before you could become one, and thus becoming a permanent resident marked the beginning of our next chapter of waiting. Five more years. Five more years and I could finally vote in an election and not get patted down at airports purely because my last name was Sadie and I had an Iranian passport. Five more years and I would officially become an American. On paper, anyway. Frequently asked question number seven. I'm undocumented and I'm scared. Any words of advice? I was scared, too. I was scared a lot of the time. There are some details in my family's immigration story that I have chosen to leave out of the book because I'm still scared to get in trouble for having been here illegally for so long, especially considering the unpredictable times we're living in. For undocumented immigrants, past or present, the fear becomes a normal part of our daily lives. Even after the relief of getting a green card or becoming an American citizen, it's easy to channel my days as an illegal alien and feel the anxiety all over again. So I'm not being disingenuous when I say I feel your pain. As of now, it's impossible to know what the future holds, but we're living in a much scarier era for immigrants and other marginalized groups than when I was growing up. I could have never imagined arriving in America only to be ripped away from your parents and placed at a detention center. Today, it's surprising to remember that it was Republican President Ronald Reagan who granted amnesty to nearly 3 million undocumented immigrants in 1986. Our family was ineligible because amnesty was only granted to those who came to the country before 1982. And now we were certainly living in a much more terrifying time than we did under the Obama presidency. Some call former President Barack Obama the deporter-in-chief because his administration deported undocumented immigrants more than any other president before him. This isn't totally inaccurate, but it's also likely that Obama took a hard line against immigrants with serious criminal records in hopes of passing legislation that would help undocumented families and children stay together. In June 2012, the Obama administration implemented Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, by the way of executive order. This was primarily in response to the Development Relief and Education for Alien Minors, DREAM, Act's failure to pass in Congress. Under DACA, 
undocumented children who entered the United States before the age of 16 would avoid deportation. However, the executive order only bestowed temporarily legal presence and work authorization. To become a permanent resident, a DACA recipient had to qualify through another basis, normally through a spouse or a child over the age of 21 who is a U.S. citizen. Then in November 2014, also under executive action, Obama announced an immigration policy that would have helped millions of other undocumented immigrants by also giving them work permits and deferred action, basically a safeguard against deportation. The new program was, also, was called Deferred Action for, for Parents of Americans and Lawful Permanent Residents, DAPA. I spoke to my cousin, Kenosha Nesifi Karan, in form a former immigration lawyer, and she referred to DAPA as what every immigrant immigration lawyer lawyer she knew had been waiting for because it would have helped legalize so many people who lived and worked in the shadow for years. Unfortunately, DAPA was halted by the court system, and when the case, U.S. versus Texas, eventually made it to the Supreme Court, which at the time had only eight members, the justices handed down a split decision. Thus, the lower appellate courts holding that Obama did not have the right to implement the program remained the final word and DAPA never went to effect. This was a state of immigration reform under a leader who had progressive and humane intentions on the issue and was stonewalled and thwarted at every turn. Sadly, on September 5, 2017, and as of this writing, President Trump rescinded DACA, giving Congress six months to pass legislation on immigration reform all while putting the lives of 700,000 young people in limbo. Many thought the decision to place the fate of DACA in the hands of Congress was a bargaining chip for the president to get his border wall. Nearly a year later, DACA recipients remain in flux, while various pro efforts have been made to either end or continue the program via our country's legal system. As of this writing, there are several lawsuits surrounding DACA, in a number of states, but the federal courts don't see eye to eye on the issue. For instance, federal judges in California and New York have ruled on the side of DREAMers, ordering the Trump administration to allow DACA recipients to apply for two-year renewals. The government has appealed that decision to the higher courts. Another ruling in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia ruled that the program must be reinstated and that the government needs to accept applications from those who are newly eligible for the program. Meanwhile, nine states, led by Texas, have sued to end DACA permanently. If Congress doesn't eventually come through, the future of DREAMers may be decided by the Supreme Court. During his presidential campaign, Donald Trump talked about building walls and deporting the 11 million undocumented immigrants currently living in the United States. There are people across the country who not only championed these, those policies, but also cited them as the reason they voted for him. On November 8, 2016, as I watched the election results with the, with the rest of the country, I experienced waves of panic broken up only by heavy sobs. Throughout the night, my sister and I called each other. If she was one spiraling, I tried to calm her down. If I was the one spiraling, she tried to calm me down. As the sun came up the next day, I didn't know what to mourn first. As a female, a minority, and an immigrant, I felt lost. And I don't blame my confusion on living in a bubble. Yes, I grew up and live in one of the most liberal states in the nation. I know parts of the country relate to me about as much as I relate to them, but I had mistakenly thought that even if our lives were undeniably different, we were still connected by our humanity. 
and that ultimately our morals will prevent us from electing someone who promoted racism and misogyny and xenophobia. Also, I really wanted to witness Hillary Clinton become the first female president. That didn't happen, which may be why you're more afraid now than you've ever been. It's impossible for me to know how the country's policy on immigration will continue to evolve, but after the fallout from an executive order to turn away refugees and ban citizens from Iran, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, Venezuela, and Yemen from entering the United States, the future seems even more uncertain. In June 2018, in a 5-4 to decision, the Supreme Court voted to uphold Trump's travel ban. And yet none of these changes quite prepared us for Trump's zero-tolerance policy at the border, which led to more than 2,000 children being separated from their parents and placed in detention centers. No matter what side you fall on the immigration debate, how can we as a nation support the trauma these children have endured? 17 states in the District of Columbia sued to end family separation, but as of this writing, nearly 600 children have yet to be reunited with their parents. The use of executive orders against immigrants, travel bans, family separation, and ICE raids help accomplish one goal for the Trump administration, scare the heck out of immigrants already leaving the U.S. This culture of fear and uncertainty creates so much anxiety for immigrants that have resorted to leaving the country on their own. This is exactly what our current government wants them to do. Despite the direction the country is headed, it's helpful to remember that you have options and you have rights. There are millions of activists who have mobilized after the election on your behalf, but you can do your part too. A little legal advice from my cousin. As a young person without immigration status, you must avoid a criminal record at all costs. Trump has said he would focus on deporting immigrants with a record, but that could translate to a single DUI or a simple misdemeanor. If 15-year-old me had been caught smoking pot and these proposed policies were in place, I would have been shipped away. Luckily, places like California and New York City have said they would not aid the federal government in deporting undocumented immigrants and have created safe zones on school campuses that would prevent federal immigration officials from entering. But there are also basic defensive strategies you and your, you yourself can employ. Despite being undocumented, you have the right to have a fair hearing and a right to have an attorney, even though the government has no obligation to provide one for you. You should never sign paperwork you don't understand. Most important, never open the door for any immigration enforcement officer unless you're presented with a warrant that the officer has slipped under your door. Being afraid does not mean giving into intimidation tactics. A few days after the election, I was still in a fog. I walked into the ladies' room at my office, and this is what I saw in the mirror. We will tear every wall down. I realize it's just six words in a post-it note, but for a moment at least, it filled me with hope. I didn't know then that it was the beginning of a movement. A couple months later, I stood among hundreds of thousands of protesters at the Women's March in Los Angeles. A few days after that, I watched as protesters gathered at major airports across the country to denounce the ban on Syrian refugees and Muslims around the world. I voiced my outrage and donated money to organizations like Kids in Need of Defense, KIND, the Comfort Campaign, and the Refugee Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. I was also joined by friends to make cards and send teddy bears to children who were detained at the border. All of these efforts, however small, remind me that none of us are alone in this. Even if you feel like you have to stay hidden, there are millions who will gladly keep fighting on your behalf, myself included. Excerpt from the Naturalization Oath of Allegiance to the United States of America. I hereby declare on oath 
that I absolutely entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty, of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic.